0: So can I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, <clears throat> and uh, we're, we're coming up to the end of the section of Romans that began in chapter 1 verse 18 and goes through to 3 verse 20. Uh, the section which, if you've got an ESV, you'll see there's a heading that says, No one is righteous, which is the uh, the last stage in the bad news, if you like. So let's uh, read that, uh, and uh, we'll uh, spend some time thinking about the words in front of us. <clears throat> so Paul says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and they they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips." No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray again. Father, as we come to your word again, we ask for your uh, illuminating power by your spirit. That you'd help us to understand and uh, to apply what we learn in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I said, we've been going through this part of the book of Romans for the last few weeks, and uh, we've been in the process of, of getting the bad news. And this is the, uh, the bad news about the state of the human condition. And it is such bad news that it takes uh, part of chapter one and all of chapters two and three, uh, almost all of chapters two and three, to tell it. And it's a hard message and you if you go into the world today and you, you tell people this bad news message, people find it hard to to understand they, they 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 take It takes some convincing to to prove that it's true to people in this world and that's simply because people in this world fundamentally believe that well we're all good aren't we we're all fundamentally good, and sometimes we just uh have aberrations. Um, how often do you hear of, hear people say when a person is convicted of a crime, "Oh, deep down he's a good lad." I've, I've heard that so many times. My my son, who's done this, been accused of this terrible crime, uh, he's a good lad deep down. And uh, people think, well, you know, if criminals are good, then so am I. Uh, if if they're basically good, then so am I, basically good. And so, many people really believe that the solutions to the evils of society can be found simply by better planning, better management, better education, uh, all kinds of practical uh, things and it may be an uphill struggle, and it may be a constant struggle, but people believe that uh, it 's possible to do it and Susan and I were discussing this afternoon uh, this very phenomenon, and there is a belief around that uh, you know things can only get better. You remember the tune in the 1990s when labor got uh, swept to power in a landslide victory, and the tune of the moment was things can only get better yeah. <laughs> i 'm not very good at saying it, but uh, you know, things can only get better. That's what people think. But we have seen that Paul's argument, uh, we've seen, that, seen Paul's argument that the freedom that people seek to be free of any notion of God automatically, automatically leads to empty thinking lives driven by lust and desire and not necessarily the worst of those excesses but just the general orientation of life I just can't think straight and my heart is always after something I want to go for something there's something I want in life and it leads to this litany that Paul is given at the end of chapter 1, verse uh, 29. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, en- inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You see, it comes down to this. You deny God. You give vent to your own way of thinking your own way of feeling and your own way of willing and you end up with a society that is a mess and religious people are not free of those problems we've also seen how religious people have their own problems Paul goes through in chapter 2 the effects of Empty, mechanical religion. And it's that kind of religion that also brings God's judgment. Why? Because God is not looking for a people to participate in a few religious activities, or have some vague belief in the existence of God, or have some moral codes that may or may not align with God's law. As Jesus quoted from Isaiah, Matthew fifteen eight, if you're interested, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Or as David says in Psalm fifty one, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. These are the very things that God has commanded. And yet he says, I, You do not delight in sacrifice or I bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. You see, people that truly belong to God are those who love God with all their heart, soul, mind, strength. They are aware of their sin. But oh, how they wish they could be free of their sin. So that they can be closer to him. And it is this heart commitment to relationship with God. This transformation that is only possible by the spirit of God. And Paul is saying here that even the Jews... With all their advantages of having received the word of God, they too will come under condemnation. The condemnation of the law and the judgment of God. So we're now in this final section of this bad news in verses 9 through to 20. And the first thing I want to say is this, that sin levels the playing field for everyone. Sin levels the playing field for everyone. Paul has already argued that the Jews have an advantage over the Gentiles. You look at uh, chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 2. Uh, what's the advantage of, uh, of a Jew? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. You see, these, these Jews have had a great start. They've had the spiritual resources that Gentiles do not have, the oracles of God, those weighty words from God. And so they have the the resources that Gentiles do not have. And we believe, don't we, that uh, the word of God is key to changing lives and changing hearts. Key to changing communities, forming of churches. It's the Word of God. It is true then and it's true now. And through the Word of God, it is the Spirit who reaches into people's hearts and shows them Jesus Christ. So that not only do they hear with their ears what this book is saying, what the Bible is saying, but they hear with their hearts as the Word of Christ comes. With conviction and power, and a new life begins. You begin to see God in Jesus Christ, where you see things in a new way. And so your life changes from being self focused to becoming Jesus Christ focused. But what if, like the Jews, you merely hear the word with your ears but it doesn't get into the heart? What if, like these Jews, you do not listen to God speaking into your soul and leading you to his son? What if you're sitting here this evening and you're thinking, this is all hot air? And maybe you've got your phone out and you're having a look at something else. Is it hot air? Maybe like that this evening. Paul asks this question in verse 9. Are we Jews any better off? The answer, the answer is no. You may have all the advantages, but they're all useless to you because like the Gentiles, you are under sin. You're under sin. Uh, let me tell you a story. I, I used to, um, I've told you this before, but I used to... Re- Rides. I used to race uh, bicycles. Uh, I was a time trialist uh, as a teenager. I was in a club. I had all the well, I had some of the gear. I had the shoes. I had the jersey. Uh, but when I started, I had a, a pretty rubbishy bike. Um, it was a second-hand bike. Um, it had one of these. Uh, it, was, it was cheap. It was hand-painted. Um, it had one of these dynamos in the front wheel. Which I didn't want, but you know, it created drag, so you couldn't go very fast with the bike. Um, But you know, it it got me started. And uh, one summer, I saved up enough money uh, from a Saturday job to get get money for a new racing bike, and I I, and I went to the only proper cycling shop in Ayr on the west coast of Scotland. And uh, you know, before I had enough money, I'd go down to the I'd go down to the shop, and I'd see it in the window, and uh, i just imagine me riding this great bike, you know, and saving up my money, and thinking, one day, one day, I'm going to get it. And just imagine how much faster I would go with that bike. And I'd be up there with all the guys of my age and my ability, uh, and I'd have this swanky new bike with them, because they all had great bikes, and I had a kind of rubbishy second-hand bike. So, in the end, I got my bike. Uh, my summer job paid off. Um, I got my new bike. I rode it home. It was so easy. It was so light. It was, it was like flying, or at least so I thought. But then the first club race came around the following week um, time trial, 10 mile time trial. And I was ready to impress on my, my new bike, swanky new bike. But what a disappointment! I didn't seem to be going any faster. Um, my times weren 't any different from what they were before, and it was then I, I realized something very important that the, you know a key to good bike racing is actually doing the training, <laughs> not just having the fancy bike. You need to do the training. Something else is much more important. But if you don't have the power in your legs, through training, you're no better than anyone else, even if you have a fancy bike. Friends, this, this afternoon, having the Word of God in your life is no advantage to anyone if their lives are basically under sin. Do you understand that concept of being under sin? In other words, sin, as it were, has a power over you, a hold over you. Sin is, you see, sin is not just a thing that you do. It is a thing that you do, but it's not just that. It is a power that controls you. And people are not sinners because they sin. They sin because they're sinners. And sinners are under the power of sin. They have a master, and Paul is going to come to that later in the the letter. But you have a master who rules over you. And you as a a person who's under that master are constantly obeying it. And sin puts temptation in your way and you go with it. Sin uh, whispers an idea in your head and you have a desire for it. Sin works like that. Sin is a master that rules over you. And so just having the oracles of God in your hand, coming to church with a Bible is no good. Some of you don't even do that. But even if you do, you're not there yet. You see, sin levels the playing field for everyone. So if you're a religious person, it's still possible for you to be under the power of sin. Or if you think of yourself as a moral person, you may still be under the power of sin, no matter how you like to think of yourself. And so Paul, as a Jew, writes in verse 9, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. All are under sin, left to themselves. And now Paul goes on to show that this idea is from the Bible. It's not just an observation of the world and how uh, everything's going wrong in the world. But it's a problem that's anticipated in the Bible. And so now I want to think with you about the Gentiles who are not righteous. If you look at verses 10, uh, 10 through to 18... Uh, 10 through to to 14 actually. Uh, Paul quotes from the Old Testament. And 10 to 14 he quotes from the Psalms. And they were written by David about a thousand years before Christ. And the first few verses are from Psalm 14, um, which uh, our Prime Minister quoted from recently. The fool says in his heart there is no God. Not that I think our Prime Minister takes God seriously, to be honest, but Uh, He at least knows his Bible to that extent. But the psalm is, and that psalm, psalm 14, is addressing the world, uh, a world which seeks to deny the existence of God, much like our world today. And Paul begins his quotation by by saying about this world... uh, about this world that, that doesn't believe in God, that no one is righteous. See there in verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And then remember, this is not so much a statement about moral purity as it is about being in ro- right relationship to God. No one is righteous. Nobody has this relationship to God. Nobody is right with God. And so he goes on, no one understands. No one seeks God. And once again, the fundamental issue is that people have no interest in God. People generally do not have an interest in God. They don't care. They're not interested. And then in verse 12, he says something quite shocking. He says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Worthless. What does he mean by worthless? What he means is something that could have been good, but somehow has got corrupted. A bit like uh, fruit that's ripened and gone bad. Like finding an orange in the fruit bowl and on the underside of it is blue. You ever had that? And what do you do with that? Well, you throw it out. And that's the state of people who say there is no God and have no interest in finding out about him. They, They become rotten and worthless to God. It's a terrible picture. It's maybe even a, an offensive picture. But the truth is the truth. It's what God says. Worthless. And then verses 13 and 14, uh, from two other psalms, these words speak of the consequences, primarily in terms of of speech, what comes out of their mouth. Uh, Their throat is an open grave. Imagine looking at an open grave with a dead body in it. The body rotting away, it's not pretty, there's a stench of death about it. But your mouth can be like that. Paul is using David's words to show that the words that come out of the mouth of a person who rejects God has all the characteristics of death about it. You see, when you become a Christian, uh, many things change for you, including what you say. Uh, when When I became a Christian at age about 17, uh, one of the things that changed for me was an immediate aversion to saying, Oh my God. You know, just idly saying, Oh my God I'm taking God's name in vain. I'm not really caring what I'm saying. But just an expletive, you know, expression of um, surprise or something. And so these these are the kind of things that can happen when somebody becomes a Christian. But more than that, the things that interest us change us. Our our goals change, our aspirations change. Uh, And the way that we speak about other people changes. Uh, We begin to stop backbiting and stop the character assassination. We don't want to use what we say to ingratiate ourselves with someone to to get something out of somebody else. Uh, We don't flatter, we don't deceive All of these changes are are signs of of new life, the new life that comes to a Christian. But without it, all of those old ways of speaking, there's a whole atmosphere about it, and it's in the world of death, despair, hopelessness that comes out of the mouth. And so Paul is showing here that everybody in the world but especially non, non-Jewish people there is no such thing as a righteous person who doesn't know God. But as we move on to verses 15 to, eight, uh, to 17 15 to 18 he shows that the Jews are actually in the same boat and again this is coming from scripture. And uh, This time not taken from the Psalms, but uh, taken from Isaiah, chapter 59. And the big difference, though, is that the Lord is addressing... Remember, the Lord is addressing his people. He's addressing the Jews, people who have all of these advantages... And uh, and how does he describe them? Does he describe them with ringing endorsements and ringing words of approval? Well, definitely not. Look at verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. These are the people who claim to be God's people, with God's sign upon them. But they too are on a path to misery and destruction, a path without peace. And the root of it is, is a lack of fear of God. The fear, the kind of fear that comes out of a love for God. I sometimes wonder if that's what we, we miss in the evangelical church today Is a true fear of God. There's an awe that comes upon us when we gather in his presence. Because there is a gravity about God's word. And we will hear from him. Now, Paul, uh, if you take the time to, to look at Isaiah 59, you'll see that all of us sin is what God's... Uh, it has an effect, and that effect is described by God as causing a separation between you and me. Sin separates you from God. And he's talking to to the the Jews. It's often a verse that's used in evangelism. Your sin separates you from God. And so you you have the bridge illustration of God over here and us over here. And there's a big chasm between us and sin in the middle of it. Do Do you remember that bridge illustration? I remember it as a student learning how to present the gospel. But Isaiah 59 is actually addressed to Jews. That their sin has separated them from God. So no one is righteous, not the Gentiles, not the Jews. Putting these together, then, as Paul does here, taking Scripture, he shows that they're all the same, and the ultimate conclusion is no one is righteous. Now, what ought to be the result of all of this? What's Paul Where's Paul leading us? What's he trying to do here? Well, he's leading us to to the realization that before God, this God of ours, every mouth should be closed. Every mouth should be closed. See, all human beings are full of self-justification. We like to talk about ourselves. We like to present ourselves in the best possible light. We like to point out how we're right and everybody else is wrong. And that includes God. God is wrong and I'm right. And in the court of self, where I'm the judge and jury, I acquit myself. I am free of sin in my own court. But Paul sees the results differently. There will come a point where all people, the whole world, will be held accountable to God. And at that point, every mouth will be stopped. There will be nothing more to say. At that moment, everything will be clear to all the people. No one will be able to say anything. And the law of God will condemn their sin. You know, some people come to that point early. Uh, there's a conversion experience in their life. There's a moment of realization. They suddenly realize that there is a God with whom they have to deal ultimately. And all their self-justification goes out of the window in the face of the awesome holiness and majesty of God. And all that God has said, whether he's written it in his law or the law written in the hearts or the conscience, all of that stands in condemnation of them. And at that moment... There can only be silence. And some people come to that point in their lives as they're still living on this earth. That there's nothing I can do or say to get me out from under the weight of God's law. And it's in that moment that the good news of the gospel comes in. That the good news of the gospel becomes a blessed relief to the recipient. That's where Paul wants to lead us. He leads us to the point of silence. So that Paul now can introduce the remedy. And you'll see it there in verse 21 and we'll come to it next week. But he says, but, such an important word, but. It's like a change of direction. He says, but now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Here he reintroduces the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you may be wondering, where's the gospel gone in this book? The last time we saw it was chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he's quiet for nearly two chapters, and suddenly it comes back in, having painted this dark picture, and it's Jesus Christ that is the shining diamond that appears. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, come in flesh, God taking the initiative for us to deal with our unrighteousness. He's led us to be quiet so that we can see him and hear him all the more clearly. And as 116 says, as we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then we can get out from under the weight of God's law and we can be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power with which the Apostle Paul speaks, a power which is drawn from the the Holy Scriptures, but delivered by the Holy Spirit. And today I pray that the Holy Spirit will deliver that message to each one of us, that we too would be silenced before the awesome majesty and holiness of our God, that then we may see the Lord Jesus Christ all the more clearly.